Hello and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Cook. And today we begin our Century Series. Each episode we're going to cover a decade in filmmaking from 1920 to 2020, highlighting 10 films from each decade as we take a journey through time. Now, while the film industry certainly didn't begin in 1920, that's when it began to grow by leaps and bounds and began to evolve into the art form we all know and love today. Agreed? Absolutely. Yeah, and our, our first movie will actually start right in 1920, so it's, it's hard to believe 100 years of filmmaking. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we had, like, uh, I think the major first major motion picture was The Great Train Robbery in 1903, and then we had, you know, the rise of D.W. Griffiths as, like, the first true director, like the auteur, with his super racist, yet technically marvelous, <laughs> Birth of a Nation in 1915. And then, you know, the 1910s saw the creation of the movie star. And, you know, we had Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, Fatty Arbuckle, to name a few. Yeah, it, it's interesting, too, looking back. Um, obviously, I looked took a brief look at some of the things that came out before 1920. And another reason why 1920 seems like a good cutoff point is that seems to be when feature films really became popular. Before that, a right. lot of things that were popular were shorts. And so people mm-hmm. would go to the theaters and see a collection of, of shorts, anywhere from sort of 10 to 10 minutes to half an hour. Uh, but it was really in the 20s that the, the full length, more than an hour long uh, movies really started to become more popular. Yeah, they started to become an attraction in themselves instead of like a sideshow side act. Yeah, so. exactly. So we begin with the Roaring Twenties. It's the age of flappers, jazz, tommy guns, bull markets, and bathtub gin. The Great War is over, women in America can finally vote, and the United States has become a global superpower. Europe, on the other hand, is reeling from the millions of lives lost in World War I. Germany especially is in ruins, and the red flag of communism has risen in the East. All of this is reflected in the 10 films we're going to cover today. What are they, Martin? So, starting in 1920, we have The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, then The Kid, 1921, 1922, Nosferatu, 1923, Safety Last! Sunrise, Wings, Metropolis, and The Jazz Singer. I think it's interesting that we don't have anything in 1928 and 29, but I guess mm-hmm. we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about The Jazz Singer, of just how much of a, a watershed moment that was where that basically caused a lot of studios to go back and, and rework things that they'd already been working on. So I think Yeah, that, they had to start from scratch, basically. Yeah, so I think that largely explains why there wasn't anything really significant that came out in, in the last two years of that decade. Mm-hmm. But those are the movies that we're going to look at. That's the list. So I, I think we should, just before we get into it, just very briefly, let's talk about the experience of, of going back and, and looking at uh, these this decade of, of silent films. For me, I would say it was absolutely enlightening. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was fascinating. I wouldn't say it was always enjoyable. There were there were definitely <laughs> some movies where it was a bit of a slog. It was it was tough to get through. Some of them some of them were fine. Some of them I fully enjoyed, uh, and they were quick and 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 just a, a, a fun ride. Others, while it was impressive and technically interesting and just fascinating to look at the developments over the course of the decade. 
yeah, sometimes it was a little tough to get through these movies and I found myself sort of stopping and looking to see how much time there was remaining and, okay, another half an hour of this. So that that was my experience watching these 10 movies. How about you, Zach? Yeah, a, a couple of these felt like homework. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as film buffs and, uh, you know, film enthusiasts, it was a great exercise. I'm glad that I saw all of them. But I don't think I'll be revisiting most of them. No, absolutely not. <laughs> this was a good one-time, one-time deal. Uh, but but I, yeah, same with me. I'm I'm really glad we did it. I mean the the rule that they always tell screenwriters first and foremost is show don't tell, and I think this was a great exercise in how you can do that because every time a title card comes up with text, you're forcing the audience to do work. You're forcing them to read something. And the less you can do that, the better. And some of these movies do that more than others, but it was a great exercise in seeing how the actors can just display emotions and the directors can uh, elicit the correct response from the audience that they want with a simple camera movement and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's also fun to. It was also fun to take a look at. Basically, these guys, a lot of these guys were sort of figuring things out as they went along. Oh, I mean, yeah, you think about when a lot of those studios really got started doing things was about 1912, 1914. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when most of the most of the people in these movies kind of got their start was, was in that range, anywhere from then up until about 1919. And so mm-hmm. it's not like there were 20-year veterans kicking around Hollywood in those days that people could go to for advice or, or look back at previous films and say, oh, yeah, that's an interesting technique when I do that. The these guys right. were just really making shit up as they went along. And so that was fascinating to see how they did that. And some of it worked, some of it didn't work. Uh, but some of it has been incredibly influential as it has lasted until today. So our first film is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, directed by Robert Wiene, written by Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz. It stars Werner Krauss as Dr. Caligari, Conrad Veet as Cesare, and Friedrich Ferrer as Francis. Now, this is what a lot of people consider to be the first real horror movie, and it's done in a style called German Expressionism, which may sound like a a film nerd term, and it totally is. But uh, just to give a brief summary of what German Expressionism is, it's basically a rejection of naturalism in favor of a fantastical, distorted reality in order to convey a subject, convey subjective emotions. That may seem like a mouthful, but if you look at it, I mean, there's a lot of twisty buildings. It, it, everything just seems distorted. So a brief summary of the movie is Dr. Caligari is going on tour with this guy that he keeps in a coffin it's a sleepwalking guy that he names Cesare and he goes on a series of murders at the behest of Dr. Caligari and hijinks ensue Yeah, that's 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 about it. It's hard to, yeah, it, it was kind of uh, it was kind of a twisted story tale, and and also um, obviously we were we were looking at an English version, but the we're we're looking at um, words that you just don't hear these days. Doctor Caligari mm-hmm. is de- is described as a mountebank. I, I didn't even know what that was until yeah. I looked it up. <laughs> 
But I, I agree on the on the expressionism. My first thought when I started watching it was how sort of fantastical the sets were, and that it right. that it really reminded me of Whoville. It was it, it, oh, okay. it absolutely seemed like something I straight out of Doctor Seuss. So <laughs> I feel like that I fell into one of Tim Burton's wet dreams. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I was astounded between uh, this and what we'll get to later with Nosferatu, how Tim Burton must have just studied these two films over and over because they are so Tim Burton-y with the set design, like the lopsided buildings, the winding streets, the fucked up looking trees, and especially uh, pasty white people with a lot of eye black on. Yeah, that was a question I had, though, um, because I wasn't sure how much of what we're looking at was how it would have been presented in 1920 and how much Mm -hmm. what we were seeing was 100 years of film degradation because I I did find it tough to watch in some places. The the lighting is really rough, but again, I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if that was just how it was or what we're left with because of the deterioration of the film, the print that that is available to us. I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the faces, as you said, we're overexposed there's a lot of shadows everywhere in a way it kind of suits the story but in a way it also made it tough to watch at times right and uh for such a groundbreaking film it's still so shrouded in mystery because you know records weren't kept like they are today there was definitely no imdb back then (laughs) but everyone from the writers to the set designers either exaggerated or entirely fabricated their contributions to this film because once it made it big and once the everybody started to get older, everybody wanted credit for Dr. Caligari because it was so groundbreaking. In, in a way, I mean, not only was it was it a horror movie, it was kind of the first murder mystery on film from what I or the first um, important one, because yeah. at, at, at the heart of the story, that's what it is. These killings are taking place and people are trying to figure out what's what's behind them. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that fascinating as well. I also thought it may also be the first instance of an unreliable narrator. Oh, yeah, yeah. With, with how the film ends in sort of a twist that uh, M. Night Shyamalan would have been proud of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, spoiler alert for a 100-year-old movie, but yeah, <laughs> the, the whole story takes place in the narrator's head. It's kind of like a fight club-type situation, and uh, it, it takes place within a frame story, which means that it starts out with the narrator telling a story, we flash back to that story, and then we come back to the present at the very end, uh, which was a really novel idea at the time. But that idea was actually forced on the, on the writers by the producers because it, um, they didn't want it to seem so straightforward. Huh, I never thought that. Interesting. Yeah, uh, but I thought it sent a mixed message to the audience because the whole thing was about rejection of authority and uh, how mindless drones can just kind of be made by overbearing authority. And they wanted they wanted to tell that message because the Germans just came out of World War One, yeah. and that was very huge. And yeah, so it was forced on the writers because it felt too anti-authority. So they wanted the the main character to be actually crazy. Mm. 
But yeah, I thought it sent a mixed message. And once I like, I didn't realize how political this movie was until I did some research on it after I watched it. Because on the surface, it just looks like a straightforward horror movie. But when you put it in the context of Germany coming out of World War One, it kind of makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that does make sense. It's something I um, I hadn't really considered when I was when I was watching it. I didn't do the background research on that one, so that that does make sense, though. Yeah, because Germany was in total shambles at the time. Everyone was disillusioned following their defeat in World War One. You know, we have the old war trope of what was it all for for the veterans, and uh, the evil Doctor Caligari represents the German authoritarian government, while the sleepwalking puppet Cesare represents the German soldiers who were brainwashed and conditioned to be inhuman instruments of death, basically. Mm. And that was the whole. That was the feeling of a lot of German Germans at the time. And obviously, the message didn't get through. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's there's a few movies on uh, on our list here that came from the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. But, uh, anyway, yeah, it was um, it, it was absolutely fascinating watch. But this was definitely one of those ones that for me was a little hard to watch, and one that I definitely wouldn't go back and rewatch. Me too. All right, let's go on to the next one then, The Kid, 1921. This was a Charlie Chaplin movie, premiered January 21st, 1921. It holds a rare 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And this one was actually one that was somewhat enjoyable and I could see myself uh, watching again. It was Charlie Chaplin's first full-length feature film as a director. Uh, He had debuted the Tramp character in 1914 and it almost instantly became incredibly popular making Charlie Chaplin, by the time the kid came around, possibly the most um, famous and successful entertainer in the world. Uh, You you know, we could do a whole podcast on Charlie Chaplin, and maybe we should at some point. But very briefly, Chaplin was born in London, really had a sort of poor Dickensian upbringing, workhouse and all, became a stage uh, comedy actor, eventually toured the U.S., where he was hired by Keystone Studios quickly became very famous and was basically able to get studios to bid for his contracts. Eventually, though, he started to get concerned about the quality of his films, while the contracts required him to pump out films frequently. So eventually, he formed United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith. And so this was the first movie under that, which basically meant that he had complete control over mm-hmm. production because it was his own production company and distribution through United Artists. It uh, Charlie Chaplin wrote, directed, produced, starred in, and wrote the score for this movie, which is just an incredible undertaking. Um, and um, it was one of the most beloved movies of, of its time. The kid of, of the, the title was played by a young actor named Jackie Coogan, who came from a vaudeville family and was one at one point one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood, following his roles later on as Tom Sawyer in in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. He eventually grew up and his star faded. And very interesting side note to Jackie Coogan, he later sued his mom and stepdad for the money that he had made while he was a child actor. But mm-hmm. he did not have the legal rights to that money, which eventually led to the creation of the Child Actors Bill, which is also known as the Coogan Act. And that's the bill um, in California that is 
protected child actors ever since put uh, their money away in a trust so they couldn't be stolen by parents or or overbearing guardians um and jackie coogan was also married to betty grable for a while so you know good for him and he was also Uncle Fester in Adam's That's Family. That's right, he was. <laughs> so interesting, interesting career for the kid. Um, so basic premise of, of the movie, uh, Charlie Chaplin is is a tramp, um, sort of different meaning, I guess, back then than today, uh, which basically just meant a very poor person. He wasn't quite homeless. He had a little, uh, a, a little uh, room. Um, a a woman gives her baby up for uh, well, doesn't actually even basically abandons her baby in the street. Charlie Chaplin eventually takes care of it, comes to love the child as his own. Later on, um, Charlie Chaplin and the kid, as they're sort of grifting and running scams on the street, uh, gets in trouble. The woman who has given up her baby has by this point become a famous star of the stage, and. Um, and there, there's a, sort of a struggle to get to get the child back, and and Charlie Chaplin, though, who now loves this child as his own, doesn't want to give him up. The child doesn't want to leave, and um, so it really was, as it was billed, uh, a comedy with heart. Uh, mm-hmm. At the very beginning of the movie, he says, "Hopefully, this will make you laugh, and maybe also, you know, shed a few tears." And it absolutely succeeded for me in in in, in those things. How about you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I really, really liked it. I've never seen a Charlie Chaplin movie all the way through. And, yeah, I mean, I dug it start to finish. I thought the relationship between the tramp and the kid was really realistic, heartfelt. I could identify with it. It was uh, really touching and sweet, as well as funny. And for... Charlie Chaplin to be in complete control of this movie and be able to convey all that is a real testament to his talent. Absolutely. Yeah. Now the, the, the guy really was a genius. There's, there's no question about it. Um, some of, some of the things I found interesting too, just as a, as a, you know, setting aside his, his acting and, and his stage presence, as a director, I found that uh, there were some fairly quick cuts that we didn't see in some of the other movies of the time. Uh, so he really seemed to have latched on to doing a lot more editing than, than, mm-hmm. than for instance, Dr. Caligari, certainly, and Nosferatu and, and some of those other movies of the early 20s. Uh, this one had much quicker cuts. Um, there, there were some sound effects, uh, even though it's still a silent movie. There was, there was a sound of broken glass at one point, uh, and some of the other things. I've had, there, there's this really weird kind of dream sequence near the end. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that didn't really fit with the rest of the story for some reason. It was kind of like its own little morality tale in the midst of this whole other movie. I don't know. What did you think of that? Yeah, it could have been its own short film. Yeah, kind of. But uh, I don't know. I guess they were just playing around with, like, wire work. And, <laughs> like, I don't know. I guess they just had to fill time to fit, fit the running time. But, yeah, that, it was completely out of place. And, <laughs> yeah, like, you have angels on wires, like, zipping back and forth through the screen. Like, <laughs> Charlie Chaplin, like, obviously on a wire, like, jumping, like, 10 feet in the air and, like, swinging back and forth through the screen. It was uh, it was entertaining, but I don't think it 
really was necessary to tell the story that he was trying to relay. No, I don't think so either. I, I, I did wonder, though, watching it, whether it was one of the first examples of of wire stunts being used in film. Um, I, did, I, I don't maybe there had been some others, but it's certainly one of the most uh, prominent first examples that I can think of. Yeah. But I thought it was a really good story. Uh, it was straightforward. And I think out of all ten movies, it had the least title cards. I'm not sure if that's completely accurate, but it felt like there weren't that many title cards. I agree. Because um, both, both um, Charlie Chaplin and Jackie Coogan were just so expressive, and their relationship was just so adorable. Like, <laughs> one of my favorites, maybe my favorite scene of the movie was when Charlie Chaplin was just lying in bed while Jackie Coogan was making pancakes. <laughs> yeah. And that kid was just rolling on the pancakes. Like he had a stack of like twelve pancakes. This kid's like five years old at the time, and just like frying them up while Charlie Chaplin is lying in bed. And then Charlie Chaplin gets up, and there's a hole in the blanket, and he uses it as like this decorative robe when he puts it over his head. I thought that was hilarious. It was yeah. It was and Jackie Coogan. It was by far one of the best performances, I've, child actor performances I've ever seen. And yeah, he's a natural. Maybe that part comes from his family being sort of a vaudeville family so i guess it, he grew up in it but grew up the kid as you said was only five fucking years yeah. old <laughs> how much can you have learned at that point no he was he was just incredible yeah i mean his eyes were so expressive and yeah like i said he was just a natural i've never seen anything like that in a five-year-old kid no me neither no the, yeah the scene when he's getting hauled away by the police and he's oh, in the back of the God. truck that was just heartbreaking, and it's all just yeah. his expressions. Because um, yeah. again, no, no sound. Well, I mean, aside from the score, but no, um, mm-hmm. and you know, you didn't hear him crying. You didn't hear what he was saying. Just entirely his facial expressions. It, it was really impressive. Mm-hmm. So, next one. Nosferatu <laughs> for a complete change, <laughs> going back from uh, Caligari to the kid to Nosferatu. Nosferatu 1922 uh, was a German movie. It opened in Berlin on March 15th, 1922. It was the only movie for production company Prana Film, which declared bankruptcy rather than try to settle with the Bram Stoker estate on the rights to Dracula, because basically it is um, a remake of Dracula just without the name Dracula. Well, it's a ripoff. It's a, yeah, sorry, a, a, a total ripoff of Dracula. Yeah. Um, and so a court actually ordered all copies destroyed of the film because they didn't settle the lawsuit. But luckily, some survived. The film itself wasn't actually released in the United States until 1929, which is, is um, interesting, seven years later. Despite being Count Orlock, that is the name of the, of Dracula. It's um, it is Dracula. It's basically Dracula's first ex- appearance on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed by F. W. Murno, who started a film studio shortly after World War One. Interestingly enough, he early on actually worked with Bela Lugosi, who was famous later on for playing Dracula. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. After his fame from after F.W. Murnau's fame from uh, grew from Nosferatu and a few other movies, he moved to Hollywood in 1926, made Sunrise, one of the other movies we're going to talk about a little later on, and uh, died actually not too long after that from injuries in a car crash in 1931. Mm. So a career tragically cut short. 
the movie Nosferatu starred Max Schreck, who, because of his portrayal and the fact that he's kind of a creepy looking dude, <laughs> and also, you know, he was 6'3, which in 1922 probably seemed pretty tall. Uh, a myth spread. That's still tall for an actor. Yeah, it's true. Actually, yeah, you're right, it still is. Yeah, um, and especially back in those days. But because of all that, a myth spread that Murnau had cast an actual vampire. Um, you know, so much of this myth has spread so much so through through the years that there was even a movie made about it with uh, Willem Dafoe a couple of years ago. Um, but no, he was just a theater actor, <laughs> despite the, despite the myth. He had minimal film experiences, but he was a fairly well known theater actor in Germany. He died from a heart attack in 1936. Or, or did he? No, I'm just kidding. He did. He did. He, he was just an actor. He was not a vampire. As far as we know. As far as we know. So, the story of Nosferatu, again, basically a ripoff of, of Dracula. Uh, it's about this... Um, a guy who I guess acts as sort of a real estate agent and he's been told he really needs to make some money. He's been told that this uh, famous and rich and eccentric Count Orlock wants to come to his town and buy a home. So he journeys off to Count Orlock's castle where he meets with him uh, for some bizarre reason. And Count Orlock during this time sees a picture of the man's wife and becomes somewhat infatuated, decides to move to the man's town, and which is uh, basically a stand-in for it's it's an imaginary town, but it's a, it's a stand-in for for um, northern Germany, and eventually he does. And after um, trying to chase down the wife, kill her or or make her become a vampire. In in this in this version of Dracula, the people he bites don't actually become vampires themselves they just die so that's that's right. a slight difference from from dracula um but eventually the wife um who really ends up sort of being the hero of the movie kind of yeah she's a martyr yeah sacrifices herself in order to keep him up until until daylight and 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 sort of save the town from this uh, villainous uh, vampire that's basically the 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 plot of the story what did you think of it, Zach? This is the only one out of the ten we're going to cover today that I've actually seen before. And I think it's the most well-known out of the 1920s movies just because, I mean, you know, there's been an obsession with vampires in human culture since Bram Stoker released the original novel. And, I mean, that goes from this movie all the way to Twilight. <laughs> and, I mean, For better or worse. Yeah. But, I mean, there's always been a fascination with vampires, and, you know, it, it's a classic. It's a, it's a horror classic. It's, I mean, a lot of people haven't heard of Dr. Caligari, but this is the seminal vampire movie that kicked it all off, basically. Uh, just a quick side note, I was... <laughs> there's so many versions of this movie out there because yeah, it, 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 it was bootlegged so many times and the studio doesn't exist so it's in the public domain so the version that i watched the title cards actually switched the names back to the uh dracula version so orlock was dracula thomas hutter was jonathan harker etc uh, <laughs> so, interesting okay because i was as i was watching the title cards popped up it was like <laughs> 
Jonathan Harker, and I was like, wait, I thought they weren't allowed to use the names, but I guess in the past couple of years, they just switched it back to Dracula for more mass appeal, so I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're right, it absolutely is a horror classic, I, and I can only imagine that, in particular, that image uh, when they're traveling in the ship, and that image of Orlok rising out, out of his coffin... Right. Must have been genuinely terrifying for people in 1922 or 29 when it came to the U.S. who didn't yeah, have sure. that much experience with film to begin with, and then mm-hmm. had very little experience with real horror on film. So I can, I, you can try to put myself in the position of somebody trying to watch it in, at that time. Uh, I can imagine how much of an impact that would have had. That would have been scary as hell. Yeah, between that and. Um when he's going up the stairs and he's casting that long shadow as he creeps up the stairs. Oh, yeah. like those are, the, those are two really iconic horror movie shots. Yeah. Even to, even and the to long day. fingernails and the, yeah. yeah. I, 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 one thing I did find interesting is that it's clear that they're still at that point. Uh, film is trying to figure out its own way and how it's different from theater. And this movie is an example of it. I mean, it still has act breaks with the title cards, act one, act whatever. It's, yeah. um, so it's still, it, it's on its way, but it's still, this is obviously still the initial stages of film. It still hasn't really figured out how to stand alone on its own yet. Yeah. My version didn't have act breaks. Oh, it didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched the one on Amazon Prime, but there's like five different ones on Amazon Prime. Right? So. Yeah, I think I watched. I think I I found the the quality of the print on Amazon Prime wasn't as good as just one that I random one that I found on YouTube. So I watched one on YouTube because oh, okay. <laughs> again, public domain. I, I did find though actually for for the time the scope pretty impressive because yeah. you've got even though know, you've got settings in a, in the town, you've got the the settings in the castle, Count Orlok's castle. You've got all the stuff on the ship. So for the time, it's it, pretty impressive the the extent of the filming that must have taken place for it. Yeah, the scene on the river where the the schooner is kind of carrying the coffins down river was really impressive to me, especially for the time. Yeah, absolutely. One last uh, note was when I was uh, doing research after I watched this, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of this because it's completely out of context now, but this is a really interesting instance of the latent... German racism against Jews at the time, because uh, if you really look at it, Nosferatu really resembles the stereotypical caricature of a Jew in 20s Germany with the long hooked nose and the long fingernails and sucking the blood out of pure German women and trying to buy property and take over the country. Yeah, it was... Uh, is upsetting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, that. absolutely. I, 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 when I was researching too, though, I, I found it interesting that that's that's been a criticism, obviously, for a while, and, and absolutely accurate criticism. Um, although I found out that apparently F. W. Murnau, it may have been unintentional on his part because mm-hmm. he actually was half Jewish himself um, and was always very supportive, apparently, of, of Jewish actors and Jewish people in, in, in film. So maybe it was, but again, just the fact that it, those ideas would have been so prevalent in German society that he could have made the film even accidentally suggests right. just how bad the racism was uh, concerning Jewish people in, in Germany around that time. Yeah, and the guy that played Hutter was Jewish too. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah, that must have just been so deep in the German subconscious at the time. And, yeah, that's that's scary. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty horrible. There are, I think, as we go through the many films in our Century series, there's not going to be a shortage of racism. Let's just, let's just put it that Hell way. Hell no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because, you know, art reflects life. And there was a... Uh, we still got a lot of work to do, but we've come a long way. Yeah, yeah, that's for damn sure. All right, next movie on the list, Safety Last, 1923. We keep jumping back and forth, it seems, between horror movies and, and comedies. So Safety Last was released in April for, on April 1st, 1923. It is ranked number 97 on AFI's 100 Most Thrilling Movies, the oldest movie on the list by far. Mm. It was directed by Fred C. Neumeyer who was actually a baseball player before he became a director. Again, oh, wow. these people were people who had just discovered filmmaking still at this time uh, in, in 1923. Um, the writer um, and a co-director was a guy named Sam Taylor. But really, beyond anything else, this was a Hal Roach, uh, Harold Lloyd movie. So this was a pair who had met in 1913 and started working together. Uh, Hal Roach as the producer, Harold Lloyd as the as the, the star. Roach produced a number of short films. Uh, they worked out a few different characters, including a totally direct Charlie Chaplin ripoff, uh, before eventually they developed this this glasses character that mm. that Harold Lloyd became famous for. Part of the reason for it is that Roach and some others thought that Lloyd was actually too good looking to do comedy well. <laughs> and so, yeah, so throw, throw some glasses, throw on, some him. glasses <laughs> on him. Let's <laughs> ugly him up. Yeah. So obviously that that standard problem from movies goes way back to like the, the early nineteen hundreds. Oh, that's when, hilarious. Yeah, throw some glasses on somebody, that'll make them ugly. <laughs> but it apparently it worked because the air Lloyd's glasses gave a character became became very famous. Um, they actually split up and went their separate ways, though. Um, the the year this movie came out, after numerous uh, disagreements, Roach went on to produce over one thousand films, which is incredible. Jesus Christ! Yeah. And even though he lost his best earner in Lloyd, he came into new success with the R Gang series, the Little Rascals, as we know them now. Oh, okay. And the comedy duo of Laurel and Hardy. Mm. Um, and as far as I can tell, he's not related to Jay Roach. <laughs> Harold <laughs> <That'd> Lloyd <be> crazy. <laughs> first worked with Edison's motion picture company before eventually meeting Roach and working with him. After they split in 1924, Lloyd independently produced his feature films, eventually becoming the highest paid film performer of the 1920s. Uh, the reason why that is is because he actually made more movies than Charlie Chaplin did in the 20s. Oh, I mean, right. Charlie okay. uh, Chaplin really only made three feature film four feature films in the 20s and a few shorts whereas lloyd was making a lot more um lloyd was a founding member of the academy and he and mildred davis his co-star in this movie actually married a few months before the movie opened and they had several kids together so the movie is fairly the story of the is fairly straightforward small town guy wants to go into the city and and sort of and become become rich and famous or not even necessarily rich and famous in this case he just, just make he it. just wants to make it yeah. yeah um so he has this uh this 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 gal back home <laughs> who he's promised he will he will 
grab her as soon as he's made it, and she says that basically I won't uh, agree to marry you until you've actually become a success. Um, and so when he gets to the city, he's working sort of as a lowly worker in a department store, but his letters back home, he keeps lying and talking about how all the great things that he's done and how big of a success he is. And from there, the movie is just basically a setup for for jokes and for situational comedy. So eventually, yeah. of course, the girl comes to, to visit him. He has to try to pretend that he's actually the general manager of the store and, and all sorts of things. He has tried to pitch the general manager of the store on uh, a big promotional event to 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 build up the the... Uh, foot traffic coming into the department store and to do that his friend who is, has a natural ability for climbing somehow has <laughs> has, decided, has agreed to clots to scale up the side of this of this building um but because of some other problems with a policeman uh, harold lloyd ends up having to do it himself basically it's all just set up for a comedy but I found it all very entertaining. Uh, the stunts were fun. The, the comedy mostly worked for me. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I thought it was insane how he keeps just lying his way into more and more farcical situations. Like, if he would have just told the truth one time, exactly. the, 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 the credits would have rolled. But <laughs> he's just so determined to prove to this girl that he's a success, that he will literally risk his life and his career at every turn. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a setup for joke after joke after joke. It feels like one long skit, but it totally works. Yeah, there's and there's so much... Um just fun misdirection in there, which I guess a lot of the comedy comes from the misdirection. But even right. even from the, the very opening shot, it's a brilliant opening shot because it seems like he's in prison. You see him through mm-hmm. these bars and there's what looks to be a noose. So it looks like this is a guy who's in prison. He's about to be hung. But then as the camera sort of pulls back, you realize, no, he's just at the train station. Those were the, the bars for the gate going onto the platform. Um, what looks like a noose is actually uh, some other sort of rope. So, and, and that's just the opening shot. And from there, there's just tons of misdirection throughout the movie, which, which I thought was really kind of clever and fun. Yeah, I mean, him faking passing out so he can hitch a ride in an ambulance to get back to his work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, and especially that 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 that, um, that climactic scene was really impressive for me because he did all of his own stunt work, and that looked really dangerous. I mean, there was no regulations <laughs> at the time and uh harold lloyd yeah he did it all himself uh and he even lost uh thumb and index finger and a stunt gone wrong a few years previous but he still kept at it yeah that, 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 was, a, that was a fascinating story i heard when i when i was doing research as well i, I guess he had been giving a he had been handed what he thought was a prop bomb and so mm-hmm. he lit it with, with these matches that he had from his cigarette and <laughs> thinking that he was just playing around, but it was an actual bomb and it went off and he had blew off his thumb and, and index finger. Uh, insane. And so for all of this, and this happened in 1919. So yeah, for this entire movie, what we see as his hand is, is basically um, sort of this prosthetic glove that he's wearing over mm-hmm. to make it seem like he has five fingers. Yeah. I, I totally agree on that, on that last scene. The, the dramatic tension 
of, of as he just keeps climbing higher and higher was really, really well done. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, probably well done in any era, but especially well done in 1923. That was really right. impressive. Um, and then also, I think I guess we should talk about 1920s uh, special effects because mm-hmm. a, a lot of that, especially that, particularly that scene where he's hanging off of the the uh, the clock, you know, considered one of the most iconic images in in Hollywood history. Um, again, just think think of somebody in 1923 viewing that and and how impressed they would be. But that was all done through forced perspective. Mm-hmm. which was a technique that they were just sort of coming up with at the time. So they didn't have green screen technology, obviously. What they did is they actually built facades on top of other buildings and then filmed from a higher position on another building to make it seem as though he's dangling above the street. There's actually some really cool YouTube videos out there about how they did that kind of thing with the forced perspective. But mm. again, it just people making shit up as they went along and just figuring out ways to to make these, these films. It, it was really impressive. Yeah, I'd never even heard of Harold Lloyd until we started this project, but... Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget the name now. It was a really impactful performance. Yeah, me neither. I'd, I'd seen that image of a guy hanging off of a clock as, as well, but that's the only thing I had ever seen or heard of this movie before. Yeah. So this was this was definitely one that uh, I was glad I, I, I watched. Yeah, me too. And ne- next we have Battleship Potemkin from 1925. It's directed by Sergei Einstein, written by a multitude of folks that I don't care to list off right now, and starring Alexander Antonov as Bolshevik sailor Grigory Valkulinchum. It's a uh, stirring bit of communist propaganda, <laughs> glorifying the Bolshevik revolution. Uh, this came out two years after the formation of the Soviet Union, so obviously anything created within the Soviet Union has to glorify the Soviet Union or you will be shot. Well, it tells a tale of a mutiny of sailors aboard the battleship Potemkin. It's uh, the Bolsheviks, basically the, you know, the proletariat against the, the czarist loyalists, those in power. And it tells a tale of the event, the events immediately following that mutiny. That's basically it. But... That said, there is a lot within that. What did you think of it? Um, I thought it was really... Um, it, it was it was really an interesting thing to watch because it was so different in a way from a lot of the other movies on the list in that, yes, I guess the, the sailor was sort of the protagonist, but there really wasn't a protagonist. And that obviously right. s- speaks to the whole communist ethos and, and, you know, it's the worker is the protagonist rather than one individual necessarily over right. another, which made it an interesting watch in that it was so different. Made it a little tough to follow as well at, at times um, but obviously the, the most impressive part about this movie and, and why it's so famous uh, was the editing and the, and the montage shots mm-hmm. uh, the, the editing just so many quick cuts a, a lot of different inserts and nobody had really done anything like that before in Hollywood to, to the same degree or well not just Hollywood anywhere in filmmaking to the same degree that Eisenstein yeah. did in this movie yeah I totally agree 
the whole thing felt truly epic, both in theme and scope. Um, it wasn't the first epic, but it's the first one that popped up in the 20s, I think. And, uh, yeah, the, the score, I, f- I thought, was particularly rousing. Because mm. they had to keep driving home the point that this is the struggle between life and death, the struggle between the rich and poor, the haves and have-nots, and what have you. And, yeah, the whole, um, it was, it was extremely violent, too. Yeah, I guess, I guess it was, um, it was banned in a lot of places for many years, um, in part, obviously, because people were, were scared of the reds, but, but also just because of the violence, because there was a lot more explicit than, than movies, particularly in the 30s and 40s were, and even 50s were allowed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the, but just the, the use of some of those cuts in the montage are just incredibly effective. Like think about it at the end when the, the, the battleship is speeding up as it's trying to break through the blockade and he keeps flipping back and forth between, uh, the, the ship on the water and yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So sure. You see a ship cruising through the water, you get a sense, I guess, of how fast it's going in the urgency. But what he did was, which was absolutely brilliant was he kept cutting that with, with insert shots of, of like the pistons churning away, for instance. And the and yeah. the workers working really hard to to keep the engine working. Everything that just pushed home to the audience the the sense of urgency and and the speed and pressure and and all that kind of stuff was just groundbreaking at the time and and incredibly effective. I thought it totally worked. He was obviously going for more of an emotional response from the audience. And, and you know, another scene of that, too, is when the crowd is getting ri- whipped up into a frenzy and you see somebody speaking and some and the reaction of certain people and then cutting back and forth. At all of that, I just thought, was was really incredible, actually. Yeah, it was really suspenseful, and that's a, a lot a lot due to the score, but, as you said, a lot due to the inserts, too. Like, the, yeah, the pistons and... Oh, like the the close-ups at the beginning of the maggots in the meat. Yes. Just like, yeah. It really drives home the point that these sailors are being treated like shit. Like they they even say in the movie that Russian prisoners in Japan are treated better than Russian sailors on this Russian ship. Yeah, because they would have been at that point just because uh, it's it's based on actual events. Although they obviously took massive liberties, uh, mm-hmm. the the sailors weren't actual Bolsheviks back in 1905, but events that took place in 1905, and so yeah, then they would have been uh, coming out of the the Sino-Russo War, I guess. Uh, so they they would have had experience with with that whole kill the Jews thing was problematic. <sighs> Again, yes, once again. Yeah, you know, I got to call him as I see him. But but I think this whole movie boils down to the Odessa Stairs sequence. Yeah, I think yeah, Yeah. uh, that's that's what makes it a great movie. It was a tremendous leap forward for the entire art of filmmaking. It was action packed. It was violent. It was emotional. And it really set the bar for every war movie to come. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and incredibly influential. So many different movies called back. So many directors have acknowledged the influence of, of that sequence 
on on their filmmaking. Uh, I mean, even if, even if you don't want to go and watch the entire movie, you can find YouTube clips of different segments because, again, it's it's another movie that's sort of broken down almost into acts with different segments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if you don't want to go about watch the whole movie, highly recommend finding YouTube clip of just the Odessa step sequence. It's it's incredible. Yeah, because you don't need to understand the rest of the movie to understand that sequence. It's it's. I mean, even out of context, it's really stirring. I mean, it shows the brutality of the Tsarist Cossacks as they massacre civilians by the hundreds. And, oh, my God, that baby stroller rolling down the stairs. Incredible. While the, yeah, that was really effective. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, yeah, as you said, incredibly violent because it's not like you know, this isn't the Untouchables where the baby gets saved and the, and the stroll gets caught. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, that's th- what I thought of. Th- yeah. Things don't work out too well, which, again, another movie with a direct callback, obviously. That's what the Untouchables was trying to do. All right, so next up we have another comedy. Yeah, we keep switching back and forth. Yeah. Uh, the General in 1926. It's directed by Clyde Bruckman and Buster Keaton, written by Buster Keaton and others, and starring, you guessed it, Buster Keaton. <laughs> it's a period piece set in the Civil War, and it tells its story of this guy who owns a locomotive. He's the engineer of a locomotive called The General. That's the Buster, Ke- the Buster Keaton character. He, the Civil War breaks out. He wants to enlist for the Confederate Army, but they won't let him because he's too valuable as a train engineer, and they don't want him to be you know, an, in- an infantryman and just be cannon fodder for the North. So the girl he's courting rejects him because she doesn't want to see him again until he's in uniform, and he goes on this exodus. Uh, his... The general, the locomotive, gets commandeered by the Northern Army, and his his gal pal winds up being a prisoner of the North. Uh, he basically just goes on this heroic journey uh, with crazy, impressive train chases and uh, bicycle chases <laughs> and hand car chases that makes him a war hero, and he saves the day. You, by watching this movie, you'd think that the South won because <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a happily ever after kind of ending. He gets the girl, and all is well. What were your thoughts? Uh, I thought this one was out of all the movies that we watched, it was probably the best story out of any out of any of the ten. I mean, it was mm-hmm. very straightforward, a clear goal, clear protagonist in terms of what we see as as sort of traditional storytelling today, this is the movie that that most closely hewed to that, I think. Um, it was really, yeah, sort of the hero's journey, all that, all that kind of stuff. And so in that way, it was, it was easily watchable because you knew what you were watching. You knew who you were rooting for as the, as the protagonist, even though, yeah, he's, he's this guy from the Confederate army. I think that was interesting. I actually read later on that, that it didn't do as well at the box office as people thought. And, and, mm-hmm. and some people guess that that's maybe the reason why it was that the protagonist was, was a Confederate. Um, yeah. I mean, this is, this is still fresh. I mean, civil war veterans are still alive at this point. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. I will say, though, that for me, this is the first thing of Buster Keaton that I've ever watched. 
And I've always heard of him as this big slapstick guy. This this mm-hmm. is this is what he's known for. I actually didn't find that his humor landed for me the same way that Charlie Chaplin and and Harold Lloyd did. I felt the exact same way. I thought it was more action than comedy, honestly. Uh, I didn't think it was all that funny. Like there were some slapstick moments that made me chuckle, but I definitely didn't laugh out loud like I did with the kid or Safety Last, which were the Chaplin and. Uh, Harry Lloyd movies. Yeah, no, no, me, me neither. And it was clear in a couple of places that they were trying to go for humor. It just, I don't know, it just didn't work for me. Um, but that that said, I mean, the, a lot of the other things in the movie worked. I thought um, the uh, the filmmaking again, we were just. Uh, very rapid progressions at this point. So mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how they would have done a lot of it where there's clearly a moving train and they're filming going alongside the moving train. Um, so I'm not even sure again in 1926 how they would have done that. I mean, I guess they could have had a, a camera on the back of a, of a lorry or something that, that was set on a road alongside the tracks. But uh, again, fairly impressive. We hadn't really seen that kind of moving uh, uh, camera work before this from this movie. Yeah, I was really impressed because it definitely didn't seem like there was a screen behind the train like you see in old movies where they're driving and there's obviously a, a screen projected behind them. No, I, I, it, I don't yeah, think they it, had that technology yet at that point, even yeah, 1926. Yeah, especially the uh, the climactic battle sequence with all the horses and the bridge blowing up and everything. Like, that was insane. I, I cannot imagine how long that took to shoot. Yeah, I, I read something fascinating about that, about that sequence with the train... Uh, the bridge blows up and the train crashes, not not uh, Buster Keaton's train, another train, uh, crashes into the water. Apparently that was like the most expensive stunt of all time at, at that, at that oh, point. Okay. And it was a real train and they didn't know what to do. So they just left it there in the <laughs> river and it became, and it actually became sort of a tourist attraction, this train in the river. I'm sure it did. Until World War II when... The train was sort of torn apart for scrap metal because, of course, metal was in such high demand in World War II. Yeah. So I just thought that was a hilarious story. They're just like, all right, fuck it. We'll just leave this train here now that the filming's done. (laughs) Yeah, we'll charge a nickel per person and, you know, come see the train. (laughs) (laughs) But an interesting parallel that I've seen between the general and the kid and safety last. I noticed how much autonomy the successful comedians had. Like they they were the masters of their universe at the time. Like you don't see that in the dramas or the war movies or anything like that. Like these guys directed, wrote, acted, produced, and in Charlie Chaplin's case, even scored the movie. Yeah, they were the kings of the universe back then, and I would have never guessed that. No, no, I just uh, um, that kind of thing is sort of unthinkable today, I guess. Yeah. Um, even if you want to get a couple of investors, you're always listening to somebody. It's, uh, but it's also just incredibly impressive just how much work they they must have been doing. The kind oh, the yeah. kind of pressure and strain on these guys. To, to realize their visions. But again, because they had that control, they really could actually realize their visions rather than uh, a mismatch of, of other people's ideas. Yeah, so I thought it was a I thought it was a good movie. It just wasn't what I was expecting because I was expecting slapstick comedy and I got like a like 
die hard on a train kind of thing. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next one. 1927, Sunrise. This movie came out on September 23rd, 1927. It is ranked 63rd on AFI's 100 Passions list and 82nd on the Top 100 Movies list. This, like Nosferatu, was an F.W. Murdoch film. This was his first Hollywood film, and he was basically given complete freedom by William Fox, of 20th Century Fox fame, to, to make the film. It was the first feature film to use Fox's movie tone sound on film system. And what that basically meant was that they, they recorded the score right on the film. Um, mm-hmm. And so there wasn't sort of an orchestra playing and the film being made. It, it was all together. It won the Academy Award for Best Unique and Artistic Picture in the very first Academy Awards. But that category was dissolved the next year. So it's the only movie to ever win that. And the Academy now actually recognizes Wings as the premier winner. Uh, but at the time, in 1927, they, those awards were kind of seen as almost co-equal awards. Um, it also won for cinematography, best, uh, uh, best Cinematography, and Best Actress for Janet Gaynor, the first, uh, the, the first actress to win Best Actress. But interestingly enough, she was actually awarded, again, this was a one-time deal only in the 1927 Academy Awards. It changed the next year. She was awarded for multiple roles that year. Uh, so it wasn't just for this movie. It was for oh, okay. roles that she'd done over three movies. So it was Best Actress of the Year kind of thing. That's an interesting award. I, yeah. I wonder if they should bring that back. Yeah, maybe they should. I mean, Florence Pugh would have killed it last year. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or ScarJo. Yeah, that's true. That's twice. true. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, Janet Gaynor actually made the transition to talkies fairly easily, uh, becoming one of the top th- uh, theater draws from the 1930s. And famously, she was in the first A Star is Born in 1937. Mm-hmm. What do we have, 12 of those since then? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, brief recap of the story, which was fairly straightforward, but also, in my opinion, a little weird. So, basically, this guy is married, and and I say this guy and that girl, because that's actually how they're accredited in the film, too. Mm -hmm. And he gets seduced, I guess, by this woman from the city, <laughs> um, who convince him, convinces him that he should kill his wife and then move to the city with her. So mm-hmm. he takes his, his wife, uh, played by Janet Gaynor, out on, on a boat, and he's about to kill her, but then eventually you know, he can't do it. He can't bring himself to kill his wife. She runs off in fear, runs off to the city. He chases her. Uh, eventually they... They reconcile. She forgives him for some reason <laughs> for trying to kill her. <laughs> they realize they love each other. Uh, eventually come back to to their hometown where they get caught in a storm when they're out on the water again. Why she went out on the water again with him, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she falls overboard. 
he thinks that she is actually drowned. The whole town's uh, folk are out searching along the water for her. The woman from the city believes that the man has has gone forward with their plan, and so she's all happy. She thinks that this is all part of the plan, that he actually drowned her and is going to run off with her until the woman is discovered. She wasn't drowned after all, and they they fall into each other's arms again and the woman from the city just kind of uh, pisses off back to the city. So that's a plot summary. <laughs> you can tell my my views of the plot from my, from my tainted uh, recapping of the story. But Well, you missed the most important part. They they embrace as the sunrise. Oh, of course, yes, that's right. <laughs> Which is why the it's called sunrise. sunrise. The sunrise. <laughs> a, a, a song of two humans is the subtitle. Yes. yes. Anyway, thoughts. <laughs> This is what we would call in 2020 problematic. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> this guy is a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> there is a lot of violence against women. Anytime he gets the least bit ticked off, he starts to choke the women from the city. <laughs> but then they wind up making out in the end anyway. So <laughs> I guess that's their kink. <laughs> Yeah, and, and not to mention the fact that um, that the, this whole trope of the oh the evil temptress woman, <laughs> I mean, come on. I was just I was just gonna say that this really reinforces the homewrecker trope, which I've always hated because it acts like the guy has no agency. Exactly. <laughs> like he's just takes two to tango. So, yeah, he he just he just so spellbound by this woman that he just can't control where he puts his dick, but. Uh, yeah, I thought it was well acted, it was really well shot, it was stylish, but I wasn't particularly enthralled. I wound up laughing more than getting actually involved in the story just because it was so ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if this is something that we were doing, sort of a movie review of today, if it came out today, I, I would have had a lot of sarcastic re- <laughs> comments in the review. One, of, one right. of the big ones was, the the guy and his wife, they have a kid, so yeah. she runs off to the city. He chases her. Where the hell was the kid the whole time? They just left this kid at home. I mean, I guess in the end there is some sort of like, I don't know, it's her mother or aunt or somebody yeah. who's there, but they don't bother. They just piss off to the city for a couple of days and in the city after they've reconciled, they're dancing and having fun. Never once think about the damn kid that they've got at home. No, this family is doomed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It, the, it was it was a bit of a mess of a story i will agree though incredibly beautifully shot um the the city sequences were were pretty incredible and apparently that was all sets they built mm-hmm. this entire set which to that point was the most expensive set ever created so expensive mm-hmm that Fox ended up reusing it in subsequent movies to try to get his money back. He's like, well, we built the set. Might as well make use of it. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So all that stuff was was uh, pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, not a, not a big fan of this movie. No, I, I don't think I'll be seeing it again. <laughs> Definitely <but>. not. <laughs> Unless it's like, you know, if I have like a bunch of, film friends over and we're all drunk and you know we watch it with the sound off and that might be fun (laughs) (laughs) other than that i think i'm done with sunrise yeah so then we move on to wings in 1927 directed by william a wellman written by hope loring and louis d lighton and starring 
Clara Bow, Buddy Rogers, and Richard Arlen. This movie's historic in several ways, but most noticeably, it was the first film to win the Oscar for Best Picture at the inaugural Academy Awards ceremony in 1927. That was held at the iconic Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel, which is still standing and open today. It's about 10 minutes from my apartment in Burbank. It was hosted by Douglas Fairbanks. In a far cry from today's ceremonies, tics, tickets cost five bucks. The whole ceremony lasted 15 minutes, and it wasn't, <laughs> and it wasn't broadcast on the radio. A far, yeah, far cry from the three hours and 15 minutes it now takes. So there was no long overdue montage to montages or anything like that like they normally do at the Academy Awards these days. Yeah. It was the first film appearance of Gary Cooper, who would, of course, go on to become a Hollywood legend in his own right. It cost $2 million to make, which was a big-budget, like, tentpole production back then. That's, like, Marvel money today. <laughs> and it uh, it tells the story of two flyboys in World War One who are vying for the affections of one girl. And it's a really compelling story of just the trials and tribulations of war. It's not a propaganda movie. It actually shows the horrors that come with being in war. I mean, there's no real happy endings in war. And this, I think, is the first movie to really illustrate that. And I found the story to be extremely compelling. What about you? Yeah, I agree. Uh, Just one small um, clarification. Clara Bow wasn't the one that they were both vying for. She's the other girl. Uh, the the oh, the, the right, girl right, Sylvia right. is is the the sort of the the sexy rich girl from the city that they both are in love with at the beginning, and Clara Bow is kind of like the the nice fun girl next door. Right, right. Um, I thought it, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was it was really well done. Um, the yeah, I agree. The, the story story was compelling. The the war scenes were were incredible. Um, the some of the some of the filmmaking techniques again just constant development in the 20s some of the the cuts and the different coverage i noticed that they had which i hadn't noticed in a lot of other movies before um coverage of, again film nerd sort of thing talking here but it's basically where you have different shots from different angles in the same scene and whether that can be a close-up an extreme close-up a wide shot all of the same scene again so you can cut back and forth there there was a fair amount of that in this movie that I hadn't really seen in the in the previous movies on this list before um i thought um I gotta say, I, I could have done without the whole damn twenty minutes sequence of the, of the guy seeing bubbles for no reason in the middle oh. of the movie. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that was and yeah. why it kept going on so long. I, I, was it meant to be funny? I guess maybe the first minute, but uh, I could have done without that, especially considering it, the movie was two and a half hours long. <laughs> they probably yeah, this they, is a long movie. They probably didn't need that. But yeah, the the battlefield sequences, especially near the end, I, I mean, they, they rival some of the stuff you would see today with you know the tanks rolling across no man's land and and it was that all that was really incredible. Yeah, apparently they had three hundred stunt pilots, and to do the flying sequences, they had to wait up to eighteen days for the perfect weather condition to perform all these stunts. Um, yeah, it was crazy. I, I was really impressed with the quality of this movie in all aspects. I mean, even the the title cards had like those flashy transitions, and yeah. when you see like when 
the when World War One breaks out and you see war big up on the screen, it has like the flames coming out. Like they're really playing around with their uh, technology they had back in the day. But uh, yeah, the flying sequences was amazing. The cinematography was outstanding. It was dramatic. They had funny moments. It was engaging. I mean, it was really everything you want in a film watching experience, even today. Yeah, I, I will say, uh, going back to the the not very nice protagonist. I mean, he's not quite as bad as the guy in Sunrise, but <laughs> but the main character of Jack is kind of a dick, and, yeah, and yeah, not totally. really a good not really a good hero. I mean, he's he's a dick throughout most of the movie to almost everybody around him. Um, picks fights with his with the guy who becomes his friend for basically no reason at the beginning until mm-hmm. the guy keeps standing up to him, and and then I guess he's oh, okay, you're not so bad. Then they become <laughs> friends, uh, but then he is just constantly acting like an ass. He ends up killing the friend at the end. So again, not very heroic. Again, that speaks to I guess what you were talking about though. But well, the, in, the, inadvertently. Inadvertently, yeah, inadvertently, but. Not really a hero, though. <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, but he's trying. Like, okay, it's just a little backstory. Like he's trying to avenge his friend. Yes, he, 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 he thought he, he thought he was dead. It's really a great case of dramatic irony. It's like very Shakespearean, where the one guy crashes behind enemy enemy lines. He steals a German plane, gets back up in the air. And then the other friend shoots him down because obviously he thinks he's German because he's flying a German plane. Yeah, and he's trying to avenge his friend's death. I I know right. I, I I acknowledge all that. He just he never throughout the entire movie he never really was the kind of guy that I wanted to root for. And then yeah. and then in the end he sort of ends up with Clara Bow just because it kind of seems there's no other options for him because he realizes the other <laughs> girl doesn't actually love him. So yeah. anyway, I, I just didn't really like him as a, as a, as a character, but that's not to say that he wasn't a well-drawn character and it wasn't a, a good movie. It's just mm-hmm. a personal dislike for the actual character. Yeah. It, just watching this for the first time, it, I can see that Pearl Harbor by Michael Bay. Oh, clearly. Was a to- total ripoff, total ripoff of this movie. Total ripoff, yeah. It was almost the exact same plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Kate Beckinsale in the, in the Clara mm-hmm. Bow role. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, but yeah, I was blown away by the ending. I did, I, I knew almost nothing coming in except that there were going to be good flying sequences and, yeah, the like I said, the dramatic irony of a friend killing another friend when he's trying to avenge the guy that he's actually killing is really good drama. It's true. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you're right, sort of Shakespearean in, the, in that way. Yeah, it was one of the first films to show nudity, and it'd be one of the last because we wouldn't see it again in, in the mainstream, at least, until the late 60s, early 70s when the Hayes Code was lifted. Yep, quick flash by Clara Bow as she's changing. Yeah. Some dude butt. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> and it was also considered to be a lost film. It was almost lost to the ages. It wasn't rediscovered until 1992 when a copy of it was discovered in the Cinémathèque Française in Paris. Did I say that right? Really? I did not know that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that would have been a real tragedy if this was gone forever. Absolutely. I mean, the quality of the print that I saw was was really good, so it must have been pretty well preserved then. Well, yeah, they found an original print of it, but nobody knew it was there. The uh, the Cinémathèque Française is one of the world's largest uh, film libraries, so I guess it was just collecting dust in there, but it was well-preserved enough that they were able to transfer it to uh, from... Uh, shit, what was the... 
nitrate nitrate yeah they were able to uh transfer it from nitrate to modern film and preserve it that way so wow yeah lucky that, l- that, lucky yes lucky world yeah that that lowly clerk that probably found it just dusted it off and it's like oh <laughs> eureka <laughs> all right next movie on the list and the second last one we're going to be looking at is Metropolis from 1927. This movie was released in February on February 6th, 1927. Um, and it was directed by Fritz Lang. And Fritz Lang is basically your sort of original, stereotypical, hard-ass German director. Mm-hmm. He was known for just really pushing his actors and everybody really heard multiple takes, having people stand in uncomfortable situations. In, the, in this case, in this movie, he had a whole bunch of kids basically standing in freezing water for hours at a time. Um, and just kind of the the original of, of all those stereotypes of a hard-ass German director. This was one of the very first science fiction movies ever released. It only received lukewarm reception when it was released, though. There are, as many of these movies from the 20s, various different versions of the movies, of the movie as it was cut down right after it premiered because it was a very long movie again. Uh, Some footage was lost and then various parts of it were recovered. And so eventually in the sort of 2000s, there was a, a print that was discovered in um, and, and they tried to bring it together and put it, but again, what we see today may or may not have been the original one. The, the actual original movie, as it was uh, screened in 1927, probably doesn't exist anymore, um, but there are multiple versions out there. This was a movie that was a collaboration between Fritz Lang and his wife, Thea von Harbo, who were married when they developed the idea. She was the writer, he was the director. They worked together on numerous films until 1933 when they were divorced. Um, the, there were a lot of special effects, obviously, a science fiction movie. One of the guys who was sort of the special effects guru was a guy named Eugene Schuftan who is a special effects guy who invented a technique to use mirrors to place actors in miniature sets because a lot of this movie was done with miniature sets. Uh, oh, okay. He, much, much later, interesting, this Schuften guy, much, much later won the Oscar for cinematography for The Hustler. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting career that guy had. Um, but the special effects for this movie were were absolutely groundbreaking, not only using the Schuften effect, which has been used up to this day. I mean, even Peter Jackson used it um, in certain parts in the Lord of the Rings uh, series. Um, mm-hmm. But the costume design for the for the machine man, the mad scientist sequence, the the special effects for the time were were extraordinary. It has influenced so many movies over the years, you can't even really name them all, from from uh, sci-fi movies like Blade Runner to Star Wars. I mean, The Machine Man basically is C-3PO to The Matrix. Uh, but hell, even it, it, even something like Parasite, which just came out with the, the differences between the rich on the hill and the poor down below, that all came from, from Metop- Metropolis. Yeah, I'd never heard of this movie uh... It has nothing to do with Superman, first of all. <laughs> but it's so wide-reaching. Like, it influenced, as you said, all, all those that you listed, but it influenced music as well. It, like um, Pink Floyd's The Wall 
draws on this big time. And even up to Lady Gaga with some of her music videos, uh, they're influenced by this. And I had no idea. Um, but before we get deeper, did you watch the short version or the longer version? I, I watched the longest version I could find. So it was pretty long. It was about two hours and twenty-eight minutes, or something like that. I think. Yeah, I think they said the, the they, they say the original, as it was originally screened, was two hours and thirty-five. So still mm-hmm. missing some time, but I watched as much of it as as I could to see as close as as possible to what the original movie would have been. Yeah, I went with the hour and fifty-eight version one just because it was two dollars cheaper on Amazon, and I couldn't find it on YouTube, but. <laughs> It, it, it's cool that there are so many mysteries and so many different versions of the 20s movies out there because it's kind of like cinematic archaeology. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like you really have to dig to find as much as you can about these movies because, like, I mean, there was no uh, Director's Guild, Writer's Guild, nothing was unionized. It was all just a, a free-for-all and no records of anything besides what film historians have gone and decided to dig up. Yeah, you can see, looking back at these movies, why the work that people like Spielberg and others are doing um, to preserve old film is, is so important. Uh, right. Because otherwise, yeah, if, if, if people hadn't started that work sort of 10 to 15 years ago, um, it's quite possible a, a lot of these movies would have been lost within the next uh, generation. It just lost oh, lost entirely. Yeah. So, kudos to to Spielberg and other other lovers of film for for putting their their money and efforts into into those preservation efforts. Exactly. But back to the actual movie, I was really surprised to see a full on sci fi movie pop up in this list. Just uh, it it was a legit sci fi. Yeah, movie it absolutely was. Yeah, nineteen twenty seven, and it wasn't campy like uh, you know, it wasn't. The Buck Rogers or anything like that. It was it was like Matrixy, like you said earlier, and it was crazy ambitious for a movie made ninety three years ago. Yeah, in- incredibly ambitious, um, and, and not just in terms of the filmmaking, but but the themes as well. Uh, I, for me, this was actually one of the drawbacks of the movie, though. I think there was there was almost too much that they wanted to get into it. That the story itself yeah. became. We didn't really go through the plot. Um, the story became a little muddled uh, because agree, because they were yeah. trying to throw so much in there. I mean, there's obviously themes about social social justice and 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 the the title that comes up in the middle and the end. The mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart. Uh, trying to you know the rich and the poor must work together and and, and find justice and compassion in between. Um, yeah. There were themes about the domination of technology and and where that is leading to. So there, there are all sorts of these these themes that they've tried to shoehorn into this movie. That, yeah, class warfare, industrialization, all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I mean, it was it was um, a laudable effort. I didn't think story wise it always necessarily worked. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one because I found myself kind of checking out throughout the movie mentally. Yeah. Um, after the novelty of the set design, which blew me away, by the way, the set design was amazing, and we're talking 60 years prior to the advent of CGI. But, uh, yeah, after the novelty of that wore off, I 
straight up got bored. Yeah, 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 me uh, too, me too. I didn't know if it was maybe because I'd watched nine silent films over the course of five days. <laughs> <But> <laughs> yeah, it was this long. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I agree. This, this is definitely one that was that was hard to make it through. <laughs> um, but it, deser- it deserves to be seen, especially if you're a film buff. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because then you can see how it influenced every film, every sci-fi film that came after it. Yeah. And, and, and Fritz Lang is, is another one of these uh, German directors that eventually made his way to Hollywood. Um, mm. He did so around the time he divorced his wife because his wife by that time was starting to become a Nazi sympathizer. And no. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't so much in favor of that. So he moved off to Hollywood. She stayed there. And, and uh, yeah, well, I guess enjoyed the rest of the 30s and 40s with the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, we're going to get further into that as we get into the 30s for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he may have been a hard ass, to, uh, a bit of an asshole as a director, but uh, yeah, at least he wasn't a Nazi, so kudos to Fritz Lang. <laughs> it's a low bar to set, it really but is. <laughs> at least you're not a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to our final film, which is The Jazz Singer in 1927, the first quote-unquote Talkie. It's directed by Alan Croslin, written by Alfred A. Cohn, and starring Al Josen as the titular jazz singer. I thought this was going to be an actual talkie, but it was more like a singy with some talkie thrown in there. But uh, it's a pretty straightforward story that we've seen countless times since uh, uh, a Jewish kid rejects his father's expectations for him and becomes a jazz singer when the dad wants him to become a singer for the uh, congregation in the synagogue. And that's been done all the way up through Happy Feet with Penguins. It's just just any movie that, uh, you know, a kid rejects his dad expectations to go and follow his own dreams. So it was a familiar story. But I guess it was kind of original at the time. What are your thoughts? Uh, I, I completely agree. I was especially again after sitting through nine silent films. I was kind of excited to get to this one because I was yeah, okay. Finally, we're gonna hear. <laughs> and but it wasn't really a talkie, right? I mean, there was. It was mostly a silent film. The the famous lines. Uh, the wait a minute, wait a minute. You haven't heard nothing yet. That doesn't even come in until twenty two minutes into the movie. There's right. there's it, it still has title cards. It's still almost all the things that that the silent movies were. It's just every once in a while there's a sequence where he's singing and then maybe says a few words before or mm-hmm. a, before or after the singing so i was i have to say i was a little disappointed in that um i thought that um i mean before we can before we get into a discussion of blackface and racism which i think we're gonna have to do um, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. uh i mean it's, it's interesting in that back in 1927 broadway and the stage still probably were king and and movies were becoming more and more popular, but I think a lot of the stars were still the big Broadway stars. People knew them. They were famous. Al Jolson was was famously a big um, stage star before before he even uh, was in the Jazz Singer. And so it's interesting that this was an interesting transition in that I guess because what it did with the singing sequences is I guess translate that feeling of what takes place on the stage, especially in a musical show 
to the movies in a way that hadn't been done before. And mm. to me, it wasn't that impressive. But when you, when, you know, when I was doing some research and you read these stories of people who are just laughing and cheering and clapping and going crazy when he first started speaking and when those musical numbers happened on screen, that it really did have such an incredible impact. It's, it was kind of hard for me to believe it watching it because it didn't have that impact on me. But I guess... Um, that's because I've lived my whole life with, with, um, talkies. talkies and sound and everything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that was, that was my impression. Yeah. Yeah. When you take it out of that perspective, like I can't imagine how mind blowing this had to be for audiences at the time. Like I think the most recent comparison that I can think of in my lifetime was when we first saw the brontosauruses in Jurassic Park. Mm. As far as just technically groundbreaking that I've personally seen, because I was, I mean, I was four years old at the time and I'm just totally fucking blown away. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to hear somebody actually speak on screen for the first time, like that, that just had to blow your mind. Yeah, and, and it really just, it, it totally turned Hollywood upside down. Um, it, it meant, as, as we mentioned at the opening, that studios basically scrapped what they were doing. They went back, they reworked stuff that they had already shot, or they completely did, did away with it and reshot entire movies. I mean, Howard Hughes working on a movie, uh, Hell's Angels, um, mm-hmm. which I've never seen, but it actually sounds a lot like Wings, but just with maybe yeah, even more yeah. impressive flying sequences. Um, he famously ended up losing money on that movie because he basically did away with everything and reshot the entire movie. Um, and and a lot of a lot of filmmakers were doing that then. It just had that much of an impact at the time. And, and not, not only that, but a major impact on, on actors and actresses. So many of the silent film stars just couldn't hack it because either they, they were from another country and spoke with an accent that didn't quite work, or they had speech impediments, or they were just nervous speaking um, on on screen that their careers were basically ended. Uh, yeah. Plus they were like stage actors. I mean, they were so expressive and demonstrative with their hands and their expressions and everything that that just doesn't translate to when you're actually able to talk because they're stage actors basically. And when you're actually able to use your voice as one of your acting tools, then, you know, you got to tone it down a lot and they just couldn't adapt. Yeah. Uh, one um, interesting side note I, I, I realized when I was um, researching for the for this one, apparently Sam Warner of Warner Brothers fame, he was the guy who really spearheaded this move to talkies. He, he was the one who mm-hmm. bought the technology. He really pushed for this movie to do that. Uh, he died the day before this movie premiered. No. Yeah. Can you imagine that? He never got to see his vision realized on screen. I mean, he probably saw a screener before it came out, but he never got to see the audience reaction. Reaction. Yeah. Isn't that just oh, an incredible, incredibly sad story? Yeah. So let's talk about blackface and racism in this movie, because <laughs> I think we can't really avoid it. Uh, there's the basically climax, climactic sequences of this movie involve Al Jolson in blackface. Uh, thoughts? I know it's it's supposed to be like heart wrenching, like you know, like he's singing to his mom. Right? Is like he's like he's a, he's in a broad on a Broadway play, but. 
he's like focusing on his mom who's in the audience for the first time. His dad just died. He's trying to serenade her. But he's in fucking blackface. <laughs> he's, uh, I, I mean, of course it's problematic, but it was, you know, it was 1927. What do you expect? That kind of thing. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just hard to watch in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It was definitely hard to watch. And here's my question. Maybe you sort of answered it. I mean, it's clearly racist now. And and really, everybody should know that by now. <laughs> um, uh, so and anyway, but is it fair to say it was racist at the time? I I, I don't know. I don't think so. I I, I don't know. Obviously, it was like a subconscious thing. But I mean, you know, the guy's Jewish. They've gone through a lot <laughs> as well. Uh, I mean, we're two white guys talking about this, so we don't have the best perspective, but you know, I try to put myself in other people's shoes and see things from other people's perspective. And no, I, it definitely wasn't intended, but it was just a sign of the times. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, in researching this, apparently Al Jolson, who performed in blackface a lot, not just in this movie, but that this was one of the things he did, Apparently, he was actually well-liked by, by black musicians and performers. Uh, he always tried to support their shows. He, mm-hmm. he produced some of their shows. He was one of the f- only people um, who really didn't see it or didn't act as if there was a divide between black performers and white performers, which almost everybody else did. He, he would mm-hmm. invite them people into his home. And so... And and many subsequent black musicians and and performers credited him with sort of helping expose the white audience to black culture. Um, so in that way, you think, okay, maybe it's not as bad. But on the other hand, maybe that's mostly because they had no choice, right? I mean, if if you're starving, you're grateful for any sort of scraps of food. And right. so, I don't. It, it's a tough. It's a tough legacy to to deal with. Um, yeah, I, I don't think the answers are, uh, pun intended, black and white. It's, um, no, it's, yeah, it's, right it's tough. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's baby steps. I mean, you're not going to have a social revolution overnight, but I mean, the fact that this, like jazz was still considered like rap was in the nineties, like yeah. old people hated it. They thought it was subversive. They thought it was going to, you know, lead kids down the path to hell. So any introduction that people could get into jazz through a mainstream type movie, you know, it's it's beneficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It's just um, anyway. It's just something I, I think watching the jazz singer, we'd we'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk about it a little bit. Yeah, it's a it's a conversation worth having for sure. Yeah. All right. So those were the ten movies we looked at. So let's just do a couple of quick uh, recap questions. Let's go into just a very short either-or segment. Either-or. We're going to keep this going. Either-or. So first either-or, going back to the early 20s horror movies, best horror villain, Dr. Caligari or Nosferatu? Nosferatu is obviously the most iconic, but within the framework of the story, I think it's Dr. Caligari, just because Nosferatu is your classic horror villain. There's no redeeming qualities about him. You know, he's just he's a, he's a monster who's killing people. 
while Caligari is kind of deeper in that he's manipulating the mind and using hypnosis and things like that to put people on a puppet string, which I think is a lot more nefarious at its heart. Yeah, I, I, so. I agree, actually. I think um, Nosferatu, just as a character on screen, is scarier and more menacing. But mm-hmm. uh, but Caligari was obviously a much more nuanced and therefore interesting character. And so therefore probably a, a better villain overall. Next up, we have more impressive large-scale action sequence. The Odessa Steps in Battleship Potemkin or the final battle in Wings? Uh, this, this one's really tough because they were both incredible in their own right. Um, I think I'm going to say the Odessa Steps, though, just because the the battle sequence in, in Wings was impressive, expansive, you know, all the different adjectives you want to use. The Odessa Steps sequence for me was more emotional, even though it was a large-scale action sequence. And so in terms of impressive, I, I think I'm going to go with Odessa Steps. I hate that we agree so much on these. <laughs> uh, because, we should work this yeah. out in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I also agree with Odessa Steps. Yeah, Wings was a technical marvel, but I was nowhere near as emotionally invested as I was in the Odessa Steps. I mean, it's just such a great example of, you know, military might versus the unarmed civilians that are trying to protest. And, uh, you know, we've seen so many images of that since then. I mean, everything from Tiananmen Square to, you know, universities in the 60s. And, yeah, it was a lot more powerful and a lot more emotionally resonant for me and when it comes to film that's what really matters it's not about the special effects yeah well and we may actually agree on this last one too maybe we need to have picked one of us to do a Stephen a smith type hot take earlier <laughs> um, but and this is going to be an either or or uh better physical comedy charlie chaplin or harry lloyd or buster keaton well, I think we could have eliminated Keaton, honestly, because we both decided that the movie wasn't really funny. Uh, true. So, <laughs> Chaplin or Lloyd. Um, it's it's tougher for me than I thought it would be, but I still have to go with Chaplin, just because like you can go anywhere around the world, even today, and show somebody a picture of Charlie Chaplin and they would know who he is, or at least recognize him, recognize the character of the Tramp. And, yeah, like like I said uh, at the top of the show, I'd never watched a full Charlie Chaplin movie front to back, but since I was, like, three years old, I knew that, you know, the, the bowler and the mustache and the suit and the, the big shoes, that was Charlie Chaplin. And Harry Lloyd did a great job. And I applaud him for it, but nobody can touch Chaplin for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree again. I, I, although I also agree that it, that it was tougher than I thought it would be. Um, because especially if you're just talking just straight physical comedy, who's better at the phys- physical comedy? And Lloyd was more of a stuntman in a way. I mean, his his mm-hmm. his comedy and the stunts that he did, you know, jumping on cars and trains and everything, that was all pretty good. 
But I think for me, it comes down to something that, that you mentioned earlier about the kid in that there were, there were very few title cards. And so a lot of the story is just told through through expressions. And, and I don't think anybody compares to the way Charlie Chaplin can tell a story and tell a funny story with just his movements, his facial expressions, just the little subtle changes in, in, his, in his body in terms of just straight physical comedy. Yeah, it was close, but I, it's it's got to be Chaplin. I mean, there, there's a re- he's a legend for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one, most inadvertently racist, Nosferatu or jazz singer? Uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess I'll probably go with Nosferatu because you said inadvertently racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because at least today for, for an audience in 2020, blackface is pretty overtly racist. <laughs> so I'll, I'll go with Nosferatu because, yeah, as you pointed out, there's just all those those horrible um, stereotypes of the Jewish people that were, that were brought forward in that movie were, were just really cringe-inducing. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna go with Jazz Singer with this one because I think Al Jolson was actually coming from a good place here, and he wasn't doing it with any, you know, hate in his heart. I think that was just a sign of the times, and Nisratu was too. But I think Jazz Singer was most inadvertent. Okay, <laughs> which is kind of it's kind of a double double negative, but <laughs> I think he was the most inadvertent. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, now we're going to wrap up with a little who won the decade section. And actually, the first one can probably double as an either-or. So uh, which country or region won the decade? Let's say either-or. Was it the United States or the rest of the world? I think it was the world this time. Uh, Hollywood has, as, as of the 20s, has just established itself as the filmmaking capital of the world. They put out, uh, I believe, it, let me check the figure, Yeah, 83% of the movies that were made in the world at the time. But this this is like the height of foreign movies in America, if you think about it, because of the title cards. You didn't have to understand what the language was. You just had to read the body language of the actors, follow what the director was telling you, and just read the title cards, and they could be translated into any language. So this was the height of foreign film in the United States until this year, which was with Parasite, I think. <laughs> yeah, actually, that, that's uh, exactly the argument I was going to make as well for the world. I mean, it's it's fascinating that two things really changed, um, really turned the corner on that. I mean, the jazz singer obviously introducing sound, and so therefore language became such a barrier. And then as we get into the 30s, we'll talk more about the Hayes Code. Uh, but that also meant that the, the biggest market in the world, the United States, uh, films were was dominated by films that were only, would only follow those rules of the Hayes Code. And so those mm-hmm. two things... Um, after the 20s really changed and and particularly for a North American audience, um, world cinema largely disappeared off the map. Uh, but, yeah. but when you think about the the influence of, of a bunch of the movies that we looked at in the, in the 20s from from Caligari to Nosferatu to Battleship Potemkin to Metropolis, uh, yeah, it, it's got to be the world for the 20s just in terms of groundbreaking developments and, and influence. 
Yeah, and I think that's the only time we'll be able to say that <laughs> in this series that we're doing. Yeah, so yeah, we'll probably retire that question after this one. <laughs> <laughs> so who won the decade as a director? I'm going to go with uh, F.W. Murnau. Um, because partly because he had two movies on our list. Um, they were quite different, Nosferatu and Sunrise. The fact that he was able to make the transition from uh, Germany to, to Hollywood and make that transition fairly easily. Uh, he's, uh, his, his craft, his development's incredibly important. I will put him over... People like Charlie Chaplin and others. Charlie Chaplin, I guess, would have been probably my my runner-up. Yeah, um, I feel the exact same way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth that time. It's, yeah, so uh, let's move on. All right, move on. Who won the decade for? Who is the best actor or the the actor that won the decade? Charlie Chaplin, for sure. I mean. He is like, if you had to paint a tableau of what was happening in the 20s, you'd probably have Charlie Chaplin at the very top with like Al Capone and maybe Hoover. But yeah, I mean, Charlie Chaplin is one of the top five biggest cultural and just film icons that we've ever had. And yeah, for me, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I, I agree. I have him over Harry Lloyd, Buster Keaton, and Rudolph Valentino, who mm-hmm. uh, was pretty big um, also, uh, but died young. I, I would like to, though, to shout out, just because we started this in the 20s, I'd like to shout out to some of the earlier stars, people who were bigger in the in the sort of teens uh, before that people like Douglas Fairbanks and John Barrymore who were still making movies into the 20s Um, their star had dimmed a little bit but just because of the peak of the fame that they had in the teens they were still incredibly uh, famous and and sort of influential figures in in Hollywood so yeah shout out to, to Fairbanks and Barrymore even though yeah they didn't win the 20s Actress. Who won the decade? <laughs> um, for actress, I will say Gloria Swanson over Clara Bow. Um, mm-hmm. Gloria Swanson, just looking back and doing some research, she didn't show up in any of the movies we watch today. But she was pr- uh, almost certainly the premier actress of her generation in the 20s. Her career basically fizzled out after, after the introduction of talkies, which is why she was the... In- perfect person to play um, Norma, Desmond. Norma Desmond in in uh, Sunset Boulevard later on, a movie we may yeah. we may get to in the 50s. Um, but in the 20s, she was she was um, absolutely the, the queen of cinema. Um, narrowly beating Clara Bow, Clara Bow, who was in Wings, but was also famously known as the It Girl uh, of the 20s uh, for starring in a movie called It. And then that that's where that saying originated that she was the it girl and that person became the it person so anybody hot and popular at the time since that time has been known as the it person and that all started with Clara Bow so Gloria Swanson over Clara Bow and again shout out to earlier stars who were still making things um uh Mary Pickford and Lillian Gish 
who absolutely mm. dominated the teens. They were still making movies in the 20s, but uh, but didn't win the 20s. Yeah, um, I totally agree with you about actress. Uh, I was going to bring that up as a surprise. You beat me to it. Because like you said, we didn't cover her in any of the movies, so I thought I was going to spring that on Damn you, it. but you got there first. <laughs> we both so. done our research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that. So finally then, which genre won the decade? Comedy. God damn it, you said that too, didn't you? Yeah, I'm agreeing <laughs> on everything here. Son of a bitch. Because I was like, I mean, there was some great horror, there was some great war movies, but I mean, like, like we were talking about earlier, just the, the freedom that these comedians had was just unprecedented and not done today like i mean maybe like a seth rogan has a kind of like the, the closest you can get to that kind of power but even he doesn't have complete autonomy because he's not funding these movies himself <clears throat> but yeah these comedians like they wrote directed acted produced it's, it's it's insane and i think that's the most fascinating takeaway for me of the entire decade yeah, obviously, I, I agree that it's comedy. <laughs> We're agreeing again. Um, for me, I think it's also because, the, especially the kind of comedy they were doing, it was really just the perfect fit for the silent film era. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of another genre that that matches that. That it's it's just the perfect style of movie to to do for for silent films, um, and so obviously um, yeah for me comedy comedy won the won the decade, and that is the nineteen twenties. We are done with the Roaring Twenties, and uh, get ready, folks, because we're going into the depression here. Stock market crash is about to happen, and Dust Bowl is about to sweep around Oklahoma and all the central flyover states. But it's a great decade for movies, because movies are recession-proof, just like porn and contraceptives. (laughs) Maybe even, uh, yeah, maybe even helped (laughs) by recessions. So, we hope you guys will follow along with us as we move forward in time, uh, you know, the 20s were a bit of a slog. I don't expect anybody but real film buffs to go back and watch all 10 of these mostly silent films. <clears throat> but it's all talkies from here on out. Exactly. It's much easier from here. But anyway, ho- hopefully you've enjoyed listening to um, our recap of some of those movies. And if, if any of those sounded interesting, I do recommend going back and watching at least a couple of them. I mean, it's yeah, probably not a good idea to... To, to kill yourselves like uh, Zach and I did watching all 10 <laughs> in a short time period. But, uh, but yeah, go back and watch a couple of them for sure. Watch something like uh, The Kid or or even just the Odessa step sequence of Battleship Potemkin or or find clips from, from Wings or, or even just look at, go and look at some of the art and images from Metropolis. I'd, I'd highly recommend it. But moving forward, yeah. moving forward to the 1930s, here are the movies that we decided to go with moving forward. Well, actually, before before I get to the list, let me just say that what we're trying to go for isn't necessarily the best movies or the ones that we enjoyed the most from, from each decade. What we're looking for um, 
is sort of a combination of three things. One is a, a diverse collection of genres. So we're not just going to have all Westerns from a decade that was dominated from, with Westerns or anything like that. We want a bunch of different genres. Uh, we're looking for movies that were either really important or influential in some way or really typified the time period. So those are basically the, the three criteria. And so for the 1930s, these are the movies that we will be looking at um, for the next podcast. All Quiet on the Western Front, Little Caesar, King Kong, Duck Soup, Robin Hood, Swing Time, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Gone with the Wind, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and The Wizard of Oz. And we're not just handpicking these from you know the AFI Top 100 or something like that because you can go to the Unspooled podcast if you want to do that because they're already reviewing every AFI Top 100 movie one by one. Like Martin said, we're trying to do a good cross-section so we can kind of get a sense of the culture and history of film as we move through time, not just what critics thought were the best. So we hope you'll join us for the for the next podcast, um, which will come out in the next couple of weeks. Once uh, <laughs> once I get off my well, actually not get off my ass, get back on my ass to sit on the couch and watch uh, ten more of these movies. <laughs> As always, go to unsolicitedfilmreviews.com to check out our movie reviews. We're going to hopefully be up on iTunes sometime in the next few days. We're just waiting on approval from them. Woo. Yeah, so step-by-step, we're becoming a real podcast. (laughs) And uh, follow us on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. Follow us on Instagram at Unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Zach T. Miller. You can follow me on Instagram at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E. Well, this has been fun, and we hope you join us next time as we go into the Depression-era 30s on the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast Century Series. You have been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, sponsored by no one. See you next time.